Hello and welcome to Curious City. My name is Letty and I'm one of the co-founders of Curious Arts. This is a podcast all about encouraging people to get curious about what's going on creatively across the city. Um, I will be talking to a collection of individuals and organisations and companies that are making an impact and it's all about trying to encourage you to get off the sofa and get out into the world. Let's have a listen to who we're talking to today. Hello everyone, with me today in the studio I've got not one but two lovely Curious City guests. They are Sean Williams and Ali Carr who both describe themselves as artists, socialists and performers. They both work part-time at universities. They both spend time in studios alone and also collaborating with others. Hello. Hiya. Thank you so much (laughs) for joining me today. Um, So first of all, could you tell me a little bit, first of all, I'll ask you first, Sean. Okay. Um, And same question coming to you, Ali. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about your work? Um, So... I'm going to context this a little bit about myself. So I moved to Sheffield in 2013 to do a master in fine art at Sheffield Hallam. Um, I lived in London before that. I did my undergraduate in uh, Falmouth College of Arts in Cornwall. Gosh, you've really really gone the length and breadth of the country. I've gone the length and breadth, yeah. Originally from Surrey, so sort of somewhere like south in the middle. Um, I started off as a painter. And then after my undergraduate, which I finished in 2002, I had a whole, almost a decade of rejecting art quite significantly. Gosh. Um, What do you mean by that, rejecting art? I think I spent, I think I had quite a romantic idea of what being an artist was when I finished my BA, which was this kind of like, I'm just going to get a studio and a job and everything will be fine. Mm. And then it wasn't fine because actually it's a lot of hard work. Um, And I moved to London in 2004 and kind of just got distracted, really. But art was kind of always there in the background. But I didn't really call myself an artist until I moved to Sheffield. Okay. And I started on the MA 2013. And I think what I thought I was going to do was probably some prints, um, some drawings, but all quite kind of small probably quite conservative stuff, although I wouldn't have called it conservative. I'm sensing a... And then, and then, yeah, and then what I ended up doing was making a sculpture that was also a performance. I mean, that's blown my mind. How does that work? So basically, I made a big um, balloon out of tissue paper that I inflated with hot air, and that was my um, main piece. Um, How big are we talking? We're talking like it would fill this room. This is so quite a big room for those of you I'm listening I'm five at home. foot five and it would come fully inflated. It would come to sort of just below my head. Right. And then it would be the same across. Gosh. So, yeah, it's quite big. Um, and that was quite a surprise to me. And I think what I've done since is basically make sculptures that are in some way referenced, are in some way performances, performative or reference performances. But every time I do it, I'm always a bit like, oh, that's not what I intended to do that's interesting so it kind of has a life of its own really yes yeah so I'm kind of interested in that like I guess um I think my practice is rooted in sculpture really but I'm interested in how you can kind of suggest it's something theatrical or the sort of intimacy of a performance happening as well wow that's quite a long answer no it was very (laughs) very very nice answer thanks um Ali yeah so I'll have to back up as well uh I did an MA when I MFA when I was twenty eight, I think. 
That's when I started. It was two year, and I went to um, California to do it. Wow. I went to Cal Arts. Yeah, which is a kind of a nuts thing to do, but I'm the kind of person. It, was, it did take is a lot of work. Is that quite a prestigious? Is that the, the place to go, Cal Arts? Uh, Apart from obviously Falmouth. Yeah, obviously. no. Um, it's not. It's not like it, it's very particular. I, you know, like you know, method acting yes. is where you put one element of Stanislavski's plan. Uh, I can't remember what you call it. Thing on 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 steroids. Uh, no, it, and uh, the, and that's method acting. You put w- one element, right. which is a. Uh, oh, is it the what if? It's like the part. I should oh. actually know that. I've, I've got a really good analogy, longer, but, but I'm really mangling it. But it's like, basically, <laughs> you've got a holistic system on acting, and then the method is where you just put one element of it and really focus on that. Okay. And so it's like a microcosm, like an intense microcosm. Yeah, it's... Of it, one it, aspect. Exactly. Of so, kind, kind of. So, CalArts is where discussion critical discussion is put on steroids so that's that's the thing right. and that's what i wanted to go for so wow. it's kind of so what happens is it's not a holistic well round what happens is it doesn't feel holistic or well rounded it feels like you put this one you develop this 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 one aspect um so that's why i went because i did a ba and when i was on my ba i did an exchange to finland or i set it up and then i met um a, an artist from New York, and it, it was too much of a stretch for him to understand Scandinavian socialism, and then it was a too much of a stretch for the Finnish students to understand what this like crazy New Yorker was talking about. So I became this intermediary, like I was kind of like a sort of translator. Yeah, exactly, a cultural translator. And then Daniel, the 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 American, said, "You're Cal Arts." You know, you are CalArts, you are CalArts style. So I pocketed that and it took me a long time. That So I finished my BA in 2001. So I went to my MFA in 2007. Right. Okay. So it took me a long time to like put everything in place. Went for two years and then kind of fell into a PhD when I got back. Hadn't really planned that. And an element of, of kind of what happened when I was on my MFA was that um, I was making work that was recreations of cigarette cards that I found at a uh, car boot sale. And so they were basically mini pinups and I recreated them using myself. And when I took that to CalArts... When you say that, do you mean physically? So you kind of, do you, what, do you dress up as these pictures? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was very labor intensive and I shot it on film and I printed it myself. So yeah, it involved all the styling, costume, procuring or making. Okay, I can see how it took you're both you. sort of with the visual and the performance elements coming through. Yeah. So I took this and uh, I can't tell you how many times um, in discussion or in tutorials uh, with a wide variety of people, the essay Laura Mulvey's Visual Pleasure in Narrative Cinema, written in the 1970s, came up. So I realised it was some kind of a corrective, right? And I, and I knew that, um, that I didn't think it hit the nail on the head. And then I left my MFA and I thought, oh no, I, I'm not ready for the world. I didn't hit the nail on the head. Like, I didn't, I didn't win that argument. You know what I mean? I was part of the argument, uh, but I didn't walk away thinking, I know what I'm on about. I no. want it. Um, but I didn't think about a PhD. It wasn't like it wasn't like when I left in June. I knew I was going to go and do a PhD. Uh, I couldn't get a job, and I couldn't get. A, and I'd applied for photo technician at Hallam, and I couldn't get an interview. So, out of desperation, I had to look at all the jobs at Hallam, and this this 
at, at PhD was advertised like a job and it was a teaching researcher post they called it but it was a PhD a funded PhD so I got that and and really what I was interested in was kind of um speaking back to this essay and, and kind of correcting an aspect of it and how I did that was in Laura Mulvey's essay she talks about the woman in classic Hollywood film is like a cipher for the male gaze. So the showgirl mm-hmm. in the films she's talking about, she has no subjectivity of her own. She's just a holding point for different kinds of look. The director, the male protagonist, the man in the audience. She isn't herself in her own right. And I thought, I'm going to find out who she is. So I did a PhD on showgirls which involved going to 20 different showgirl shows oh, from large-scale spectacles in Paris, Vegas, Los Angeles, um, cabarets, alt cabaret, burlesques, um, gentlemen's clubs, and, and I wrote about that. And then I also kind of looked at other ways of understanding how we look, so I'm interested in the idea of the grab now rather than gaze. Um, yeah, so that's what I did. And then after that... Yeah, now now I've kind of carried on those themes. Um, my PhD has come out as a book, and um, now I kind of photograph theatre interiors, and I'm I'm interviewing Tiller girls. So I've made a video already of a old lady dancer, and I also do like little collages and paintings. So it's like I found I found a conversation that is really generative to me, and so I've I've now got this post PhD. I have this sense of real freedom in terms of how I work. So. Yeah. Sometimes I perform or sing in front of works, and yeah, I have a kind of a broad way of working. But I have fun. Well, that's the key, <laughs> isn't it? Um, <laughs> so I, I, it kind of brings me nicely onto my next question. So you both define yourself as, as socialists, mm-hmm. and how does that manifest itself in in your work? I mean, that's yeah. the big. Question. That's the really big question that I think me and Ali have been thinking about an awful lot. Yes, recently. Yes, um, particularly since obviously the election mm-hmm. last year. Um, I kind of had, I kind of had a moment in 2018. So I work at the University of Sheffield um, in professional services, and in 2018 we went on strike over changes to the USS pension. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been a member of a trade union since I was 27, maybe 26, 27. And I've been on strike before in other jobs, but never for such an extended amount of time. And how, I think how long was it? it was 14 days spread Gosh. over four weeks. Okay. So it was essentially a month, really, with yeah. little days here and there where you went back to work. And it was also in the middle of the Beast from the East. So it was like a really, really kind of intense physical yeah. experience. Like I can't really, it was, it felt really profound um, in terms of what we were doing, but also in terms of those of us who joined the picket, what we were experiencing. I mean, there was a whole smorgasbord. There was one day when I couldn't, it was snowing so much, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And I went a little bit crazy that day yeah, and started I, going, I, down with the government! Um, at which point, one of the people on the picket said, "Maybe you should just go home, because <laughs> <laughs> you you pick it for a certain amount of hours." And we were towards the end, and he was like, "If you've you've, you've done you've enough, lost it. you've actually lost yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> just get warm, have a cup of tea, come back tomorrow." But after that, um, kind of going through this really profound, what felt like quite a transformative experience. Um, I was involved with something called Festival of the Mind, or was invited to be yes. part of a Festival of the Mind. 
And what you have to do with Festivals of Mind is respond to certain themes that the university puts out. And you work with an academic, so it's related to their research. And the guy I was working with, his research was in utopias and utopian pedagogies. And the theme we responded to was dystopia and resistance. And, or, well, actually, it was dystopia slash sanctuary. And we changed it to resistance a bit mm, later. Good yeah, <laughs> uh, that's what we thought. Um, and we found out we had funding for that just before the strike. And then, obviously, we kind of had these ideas that we might meet up after the picket and talk about it. And then I was like, whoa, we can't do that because this is your research for the university. So, really, this is your, you, you'd be working and that's not allowed. So it kind of interrupted our thinking about it. And one of the other people who was working on this with us made this quip about how, um, isn't it ironic that um, this kind of resistance in the middle of all this, what felt quite dystopian in higher education, is what's getting in the way of us talking about dystopia and resistance. Gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Mind-bending stuff. And I was like... But we need to use that then. Yeah. We need to use what's going on here. We need to reference. So then I came up with this idea that I wanted to reference the strike in whatever I did. And I ended up, after a kind of long thought process, getting in touch with some people who I'd met on the picket line and at rallies and stuff, and just starting a conversation basically, and ended up making a quilt. Um, and that quilt served as quite an anomaly in my practice for quite a long time Mm. because it was very aesthetically different to anything that I'd done before Um, and also it was the first time I'd ever brought a group of people together and worked in that way so did they contribute to the quilt was it a kind of yeah what what describe the quilt so basically there was a kind of core group of us that would meet in my studio the summer following the strike which was also kind of ironic because it was the heat wave so we were we were extreme yeah we were reflecting on an experience that had been so incredibly cold and physically demanding whilst just sweating in my really hot studio um and we just kind of had conversations, really, and everybody made patches that then went on to this quilt. So it's really brightly coloured. It's quite um, overt in how political it is. And, yeah, for a long time, I was kind of like, where, how, where does this sit? I don't really understand how this sits in my work. And I still don't exactly, but I think what it did do was make me think about how my personal political ideology can't be extricated from my practice Mm -hmm. and it's not as obvious in everything else that I make but it does inform a way of thinking yeah sort of yeah whether or not you're foreseeable yeah but whether that quite answers your question because I don't think I've even answered my that your question myself no I think it does I don't know but But um, I I guess what you're saying is it it manifests itself in different ways yeah it's always it's always present even if you can't necessarily see it yeah because it's a I mean, it's inherent to who I am, so it's not like those things can ever be separated, I think. But I think after the election, me and Ali talked a lot about how we can be more public about that, I suppose, without suddenly moving into making political art, because that would be disingenuous. Can I just ask, because Ali, that question's coming to you, but do you two collaborate with each other? No. 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 I think we just we, share interests aligned. Yeah, we are currently supported by the Freelands Foundation through the Site Gallery. So yeah. we're going through a period of professional development at the same time, which means that I think that's 
that's bringing up for us both a period of like self-reflection and investigation. Mm -hmm. And I think that it became clear that we have some like overlaps in kinship. So I think it's more that we've started a, a, a conversation between ourselves and we're also thinking about how we that that like becomes diffused and, and kind of goes somewhere so that might become so we don't know what that is yet mm. but that's, but it's that's a thing that's a thing um so yeah i can answer that question um in my artwork um yeah when i was when i was doing my phd i kind of had a, a feminist politics that i was examining and then it took me a long while like it's like the last thing i did in fact the last thing when I edited the book together. So this is a few years after the PhD. What's the I book finally called? Can I just ask? Yeah, yeah. The book is called Viewing Pleasure and Being a Showgirl, How Do I Look? And I created mm. a conclusion, which is called The Showgirl Manifesto. And so that was a very long journey towards saying what I think. Because I think as an artist, saying what you think is very difficult. Mm. It's like, it's, it can be opaque even to yourself. Even while you're really trying to convey what you think in writing. Um, I mean, in this instance, it was writing and in, in material uh, outcomes. Um, it's still really different to say what you think. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to the point of saying what I think. And en route, I had talked about kind of being critical of the kind of context that we live in, as in neoliberalism. And what that kind of, what that, what kind of cultural context that sets. And then after my PhD, now as I look at theatre, I think about things in the theatre that are um, that reveal something about class. Particularly, I think more about how the showgirl tends to be working class or doesn't have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. and, and that transformation, that ascension onto stage is about um, generating a, a form of, of power and visibility. Um, and... I was, I therefore have kind of become interested in precision line chorus troops like the Tiller Girls because it's a depiction of women as many that you don't really, we don't really have anywhere else. So again, that's more of a, a kind of a, a feminism really or, or kind of just thinking about women's collective action. But also the more I dug, I realised that John Tiller, who set up the Tiller Girls at, at the end of the... Can you the, just explain to, to yeah. people listening what the, what the Tiller, Tiller Girls, Girls are? are. Yes, yeah. it's precision kickline dancing John Tiller set up the Tiller girls in the Victorian period and they carried on until the 60s and they're trained um, with a lot of discipline so that their kicks are very uniform this level of accuracy it's really the height of chorus lines Gosh, uh, yeah sounds incredibly stressful yeah <laughs> and and actually uh, John Tiller recruited um, working-class girls from Manchester and the surrounds that was part of what he did both kind of like a social project, but also because those parents or those those kids with that background would be fine about their their children going on tour um, right. and, and entering the theatre. And were they treated properly? Were they were they happy? Was it successful? Yeah, I, mixed stories as I as I research, mm. but really the finding out about the Tiller Girls kind of implies a question: What happens when you give working class lasses a wage and financial independence mm -hmm. or they can make decisions in their own lives without thinking about how will I survive financially because they've got money so it meant that sometimes return different time periods have different issues but um 
sometimes they would come back from being a tiller girl and go back to their communities and, and were kind of not really accepted or families would say to them, don't talk to us about that life because we don't know how to handle it. Yeah. But then latterly, families would be proud of their tiller girl daughters and their, and you know, the, the women who I've met now who are um, mature ladies uh, have um, a lot of independence, you know, you know, that they might be, they might own a home and have a flat by the seaside. You know, they, they've, they've lived it, full and interesting lives yeah. as a result. Because it must have made such a huge impact. Yes. At coming at the at the age. Well, I mean, how old would a girl be when she was selected for or invited to be a tiller girl? Could be between 14 and 18 Gosh. when she kind of joined. Yeah. And, and she, she might stay there up to five to ten years. She might be in the tillers, yeah. And toured internationally. I mean, from the, from the very early on, they got contracts all around the world. Yeah, so um, the Tiller girls are my are my way into into a kind of gentle probing of politics. Mm. But more than that, uh, after or during the election, I think me and Sham were really interested in, in, as many people were, were really interested in what happened at the last election and the way that our country shifted overnight and. And the way that kind of South Yorkshire, it, its face changed dramatically mm-hmm. um, last December. But more than that, we realised that we were slightly, there weren't loads of us, there weren't loads of our peer group who were being vocal online and vocal in public about supporting Labour. And it occurred to us that there might be reasons for that, as in that there's a temptation for artists who, who might be... Um, like jobbing workers who might, you know, like kind of the precarious employment means that... Which is something that you both reference yeah, in the, this... Uh, yeah, that there's a sense of not wanting to look unattractive maybe now or in the future, you know, nailing your mm. political colours to the mast. Yeah. So some people silence themselves for fear of alienating potential Do you think work that works or on business the or other, clients? The, on the flip side, do you think... Um, Tory voters have the same issue, or do you think? Do you think you know as a as a nation across a diverse range of of the parties and all of you know people's political views? Do you think we've all become nervous about stating them, or do you think it's quite a new? I think there was particular anxiety last election because. Um, because of the anti-Semitism issues, yeah. mm. I think that people who were Labour were nervous about coming out as Labour. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a nervousness in, in talking about um, socialism and, and, and that kind of a commitment. In terms of other political viewpoints, um, I think also Brexit is the, is the issue that rules our day. Yeah. And, it, and these things are so divisive and it means that, that any dialogue political discussion is um, very ramped up and very divisive. Um, Does that reflect in your work, like the stuff that you're producing now, that kind of feeling? Do you feel that? Well, I, I, I'm as an academic, as somebody who's got a PhD and someone who makes work, I'm interested in nuance. Uh-huh. And so I think art is a place that can get mm. you to thinking. And that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, and I think that... Talking about people being nervous about um, coming out, coming out as a Labour supporter, I think it's not. 
I think it's not just that. I think that generally you go through your life and you don't have political conversations every day because you're just busy living your life. Um, and I think that there is sometimes, and I know I certainly feel that there is there's a nervousness of starting that with people because you don't know what that other person is going to think. Mm -hmm. You don't know if you're going to end up in confrontation with somebody or if they're going to say that they agree with you and then yeah. that's great. Um, and it's also knowing at, from what point do you start those conversations. Like we went to, so where I work at the University of Sheffield, we have these, because UCU is a, is a union for everyone who works in higher education, but is often represented as a lecturer's union. So the strikes are often represented as lecturer's strikes. Those of us in professional services are always like, we're in it as well. It's not just the lecturers. Because it's, it's disingenuous and it's also, it, I think it lends itself to people, media and people who are against trade unions, it lends itself to slightly kind of undermining that. It's like, oh, it's just these well-paid, cushy lecturers yeah, complaining yeah. kind of thing. Um, and so we have a professional services group of UCU members who meets up and we had, because we're about to go on strike again, uh, we had. Um, Does this mean more meter extreme weather? Mind you, <laughs> probably. probably. Yeah. This is, this is, you, yeah. you may have no triggered. Don't don't no, tempt fate. Okay. Don't, yeah. okay. don't drink it. But um, we were talking about how you could talk to people about being in the union, how you could talk to people about the strike. And I think what I noticed was that people seemed to have this anxiety that they had to be able to give all of the facts and figures, and they had to be able to give all of the knowledge and all of the statistics and all of the percentages about pay and pensions. And actually, I don't think that's true. I think that you can, if you know those things, then that's really brilliant. But not everyone is, you know, I certainly could never regurgitate all those facts. But what I can do is look at the situation that's going on and apply it to my own life and talk about how it affects my own life. Um, and I think about that sort of in, to go back to your question about um, how does kind of socialism play out in your work, I went, before I made the strike, a couple of years before, I made the quilt, sorry, I went on a um, something called a DIY, which is run by an organisation called the Live Art Development Agency, who run these like short residencies. I'm guessing it's not about plumbing. It's not about plumbing, mm. no. Um, and they're run by artists for artists. And the one that I went on was in Folkestone, and it was run by a performance artist called FK Alexander. And it sounds really bonkers, but we basically... There was a group of 13 of us and none of us knew each other. And we went and spent two days in silence performing a series of collective acts. And then, <laughs> yes, like we carried amazing. rocks on a beach for an hour. And at the end of it, this, um, on a segue, this proper old Kent geezer came up and started talking to us. And every one of all 13 of us just kind of nodded at him because we weren't allowed to speak. And it didn't bother him at all. He just carried on for 15 minutes chatting. But anyway, that's the side. But at the end of that, we had a kind of discussion about the importance of sort of maintaining, I guess, a sense of things being unresolved or unknown or a sense of... We talked about how it was very important to like maintain your own, own ridiculousness. And I'd never really thought of that in terms... Holding space for that, I'd never thought of that in terms of a political standpoint before. Mm -hmm. And I think from that point on, I started to think more about how those like less obvious political things could play into how I thought um, about being a Labour supporter, about being a trade unionist and all of those kinds of things. And then in the strike in 2018, 
what I became interested in was the experience of being on the picket line and how very often that's portrayed as being really fun and you know great and everyone brings flapjacks and we all have music but a lot of the time it's actually it's just quite tedious and it's quite awkward but in that you kind of get this really I think much more powerful transformational space because it happens really slowly and it happens in really small bites and I think that one when we were talking about you know how do you kind of how do we out our socialism in our work? It's not about making big grand statements. It's about always kind of holding a space for that. Um, having that continuity. And that having that continuity and, and not being shy about it, but not feeling like you have to always be kind of waving Explicit, a flag yeah, yeah. all of the time, which I think is maybe what causes people anxiety, possibly. Um, and talking about, you know, your kind of, your lives as as artists both of you reference um the fact that it's, it's this kind of living in a perpetual state of uncertainty and that it requires an awful lot of resilience uh and how, how do you sustain that how do you find that in the in the moments have there ever been any moments where you think i can't do this anymore yeah yeah, loads. <laughs> yeah. yeah. all the time <laughs> After my PhD, I applied for so many jobs, exhibitions, professional development, residences, so many things, and I just got so many rejections. Um, But I also had a sense of lostness myself. Mm. I'd finished something. It was really an end point. And, uh, and And I thought to myself, that's it, I'm done, right? And then I thought, right, that's it, I'm like giving up on my art career. And then I realized that I had so little traction in terms of my art career that giving up kind of meant nothing. Like nothing changed. That day that I gave up, there weren't loads of people who were like crying because <laughs> I'd, I'd quit. Mm. And then I thought to myself, ah, oh, well, what I'll do to cope with the new void and the pain is I'll just make a little collage. I'll just make a little bit of artwork. So I just thought what I'll do is I'll just make a little bit of artwork to help recuperate from the fact that I'm no longer an artist. And then at some I'll point... the void with art. Yeah, and <laughs> at some point I just chilled out and I got on with it and it all worked out okay. Do you think it was kind of you sort of processing that feeling, that sort of self-imposed feeling of failure or as if you haven't been successful and once you process that, you were able to get on with your art? Absolutely. Mm. And from that moment on, it was a bit like, it's a bit like I'm still in that phase now of making art to just recuperate being me, right? Mm. To just, to just, to, I know my own, it's like, if you've, I forefront my own pleasure in my artwork. You know what I mean? Like, when I make art, I have a right laugh. It's, mm. <laughs> and I honestly, you know, like, when, when I look at my own work now, I, in the past I've had a more of a, strained relationship to my own practice but I look at it and go oh that's good that's good that and and that is the bottom line you know like I I realize that if I don't enjoy the making that's the point when I really do give up but while I enjoy the part where I make art then I'm in the game right I'm doing Mm. it and the rest is all the cherry on the cake but making art and enjoying making art makes the rest of what you kind of have to do to sustain a career to leverage a career more palatable yeah because i enjoy the making so if you know if someone accused accused 
that of being a self-indulgent act say you know because mm. it's so obviously creatives and artists we're constantly met with oh it's just self-indulgence and it's not really important who's it for what why you know why is it important why do we need it which obviously is obvious um <laughs> but how do you, do you counterbalance that argument with the fact that the other half of the life the, the stuff that you have to do in order to sustain that the pleasure that making art gives you well, I mean, I feel that that I don't feel that it's a narcissistic or inward looking practice because mm -hmm. I really am negotiating sets of ideas sure. that I that I think um, are I, I have have a need to be investigated. For example, what it's like to be a, a woman in our contemporary society in which um, mediation and media images and uh, uh, women being unable to have a free voice or a free space, you know, this continually become is problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like we have a recent suicide of a female celebrity. Um, so these things are important, and it's important to think about how uh, about politics. I mean, I so I'm thinking about big things, and then I make it, and I'm taking all of that really seriously. But just because I'm having fun doesn't mean yeah, to say it's, it's a superficial a endeavor. Yeah, yeah, it's sure. not a superficial endeavor. Um, but it, I feel um, a productive citizen when I'm grappling with what I consider to be these kind of fundamental issues of our time. Mm -hmm. And I know that by editing the work, when I finish it off, when I really do an, uh, uh, you know, kind of edit the work, I know that it, it's, it's now got a lightness to it. I'm just offering the viewer space mm -hmm to investigate these things at whatever level they want. You know, I'm, I'm aiming to make work that um, rewards the review, the viewer whatever time engagement they're going to give it. And I, and I want to give um, someone who glances a good engagement and someone who spends hours, uh, you know, a, an engagement that keeps yielding That's for them. And by and that is, is in my mind as I make artwork about what kind of a engagement and how will that linger because I think that good artwork it, it exists it functions well in the rumor like as in if someone saw my performance and then they went and told their mate I think a mate's discreet yeah it, it still, still functions beyond, yeah. absolutely and then also somebody who's going to engage spend time with my artwork and then see it again or kind of see subsequent works what about you Sean well I was just going to say actually I think that it is important to acknowledge that you know, like you're talking about making a little collage yes. and having fun, that those things, the, the, you, you do need the space to have those kind of more introverted and introspective moments of your practice because from that comes the other stuff that becomes then important. So not everything that you do as an artist is going to be outwardly important and a lot of what you do is not even necessarily going to be that good. But you have to do that in order to get to the good stuff. And that I think that's a really fundamental um, lesson to learn. But I think that I, I mean, I guess I kind of reached a sort of crisis point just before I found out that I got on, well, just before the freelance programme was, um, the open call went out, which was 2018, summer 2018. Um, and I just finished doing Fest of the Mind and I was working part-time, but I was working Monday to Friday and I was really feeling that this was not sustainable mm -hmm. because I had no time ever. I spent all of my time either at my day job or in my studio or just being really exhausted. And, you know, I didn't see my friends, any of that, blah, blah, blah. 
And then I was very fortunate that I got onto Freelands, which has allowed me to slow all of that down. But I think the important lesson that I've learned from that is that whereas before I approached my work in quite a frantic sense, in that I felt like everything had to be, there had to be an output for everything. Everything had to end up in an exhibition or a performance or this or that. Everything had to be for something. And actually now I've been able to step back and and just noodle around. Mm -hmm. And and that I think has improved the quality of my work. It's it's given you a sort of sense of legitimacy, like that is okay because someone else's institution or an organization has said, look, you know, we we invest in you, we believe in in you here is the time and the space to do this this is important yeah I mean I think that's I don't think you can underestimate the power of being validated yeah. by somebody else yeah. at all if only you could sell it in bottles <laughs> <laughs> we'd all make a killing yeah I mean I guess to add to that my my equivalent is pretty harrowing but bet- but around 2017 I had a migraine that lasted nine and a half months and that oh my god i know right and then after so that do you have like sight interference extreme headaches it was an, a, uh, no it, i didn't have uh, it didn't start with lights although all my other migraines did do, do start with the aura um but no it was just um sustained constant pain oh. and light sensitivity so i couldn't handle light um and uh that sounds like hell it it was pretty bad because there were periods where it was about just being in bed in pain with Mm. like listening to audiobooks and just having no light um audiobooks on quite low Uh, (laughs) and so that was pretty tough but what that means is that when when sham was talking about working quite frantically i don't really work frantically Mm. anymore like i refuse to get that was triggered by stress Mm -hmm. and I now realize that I can't ever get stressed again I have a real propensity to get headaches I'm not over of that now that's still part of my life does it give you the fear massively if you get a migraine migraine migraine. I now because I've been working so hard on not getting migraines and I go to a physio really regularly I don't get migraines it's tension headaches and I do get tension headaches it has been weekly now it's more every couple of weeks and I have to do a lot to uh to prevent that and I've got a lot in place to do that but yeah it gives me a sense of I'm not going to get stressed so I've really developed uh you know you were asking about resilience earlier I've really developed a sense of personal resilience and robustness It, it, it gives me real clarity on bottom lines as in is this worth my effort yes or no and so um, when I feel that I'm being called to work hard, then I really kind of just turn that around and say that, you know, I'm not. And um, it give me, it's given me really good boundaries, yeah. given me a really good sense of when I'm enjoying something or not. And that's why I really talk about pleasure, you know, foregrounding that in my practice. And that's not to say mm. anything I do is superficial. Mm. It's that while I'm in the flow of my own art making, I'm really protected from stress and I'm only really going to broaden that out and show it to an audience or work with other people or take it anywhere if that works for me and it's not going to stress me and uh, I can work to deadlines but you know I'm I'm, I'm not going to uh, say yes to anything mm. that will involve me I think that, being is a, stressed. that is a thing isn't it you know I think a lot of freelancers in general but specifically um, creatives across the board they have a, a real tendency and a fear of actually 
saying no or, or mm-hmm. you know what if this yeah. is the big opportunity or what if I just do this bit of work for free and if I just say yes to that yeah and that's why you know and I think that's a so much I think but that that's being a participant in our kind of toxic neoliberalism mm. and stepping back from that makes me an anomaly but it also is political and yeah. I also realize the more I say no and the more I refuse toxic practices the more that I I enable myself to behave like that in the future and I enable other people to behave like that. It's like the more that we say yes to things that we think might be a good idea, but maybe in our gut we know is just lost labor and is stress, um, the more we take our own eye off the ball of what we want and what we want to say and what we want to achieve. But what I'm saying is I've really connected with what I want to make, with what I want to say and what I want to achieve. And I've got single pointed focus on that. And it means that I don't say yes to things that take me away from that. I mean, I think it's also talking about how do you kind of deal with that um, stress and be resilient? Like, I do think you need the solidarity of the people that are around you and you need to exercise solidarity towards them as well. And um, I think the art world can be very competitive um, and often you're sort of pitted against each other. Um, and I think one thing that I always want to remember is that actually, God, to use an awful Tory phrase, we're all in this together. <laughs> That's <laughs> horrific. I hate the fact that David Cameron has essentially sto- stolen that sentence from all of us. But um, in the true sense, we are in this together and we have to show solidarity towards each other because that's how we're going to survive. I can't think of a nicer sentiment to end on than, than that. We'll ignore the David Cameron reference, but yeah, um, yeah creatives united together. Um, just very quickly to, to round <coughs> things up, where can people find out more about you both independently and you know, have you got websites or social media channels? So if you just want to let us know where people can find out a bit more about you and your work, that would be great. Uh, do you want Ali? to go first? Sure. Uh, my website, so my art name is Alison J. Carr. So um, Alison J. Carr and um, my, then my social media handles are Ali, A-L-L-I-E, J. Carr. Um, my website is shanwilliams.org, Sean spell S-I-A-N. Um, and my Instagram handle is shanwilliams underscore underscore. And if you really want to get this far, you ca- I do have a Twitter which is not really worth looking at it, but if you want to, it's at Hello Mr. Williams. Oh, excellent. <laughs> um, thank you both so much for coming to talk to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks thank for having you. us. A Curious Arts production.